Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Close Reads, and I'm David Kern, joined as always here on Close Reads by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina, Tim, how's it going? Hey, David, it's going good. Going good, yeah. <laughs> and uh, today is Friday, December 30th. This will be uh, put live, this episode will be live on uh, January 2nd, uh, Monday, January 2nd. Um, so we are right around that New Year time. So I'll just say Happy New Year to both of you. How are your uh, How are your Christmases? How was your Christmas? How do I ask that question? Christmas eye. Yeah. How are your Christmas eye? <laughs> how are you, How are your Christmas eye? Christmassy. Christmas Remember how we're trying to not be pretentious on this show? Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Wait. <laughs> when was that ever a thing? <laughs> I sneak. I was in the fine print of my contract. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you you know never to to care about what the fine print says. Uh, Angelina, how was your Christmas? I mean, new Chris, first Christmas in a new home. First Christmas in a new home. It was a lot of fun. I actually had it with your family. I was so disappointed that you were a no-show. I, you know, you just fled when you heard I was coming. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. Then I got the flu, so it's been rather miserable since then. But uh, I think I'm on the mend, sort of. So anything I say outrageous today, I'm just going to blame on a low-grade fever and pretty, you know, loopy, flu loopiness. I'm flu drunk. That's going to be my defense today. Forgive me. I'm flu drunk. Smart, smart. <laughs> Tim, how are you? Uh, mine was good. My, I take a long Christmas break away from Gutenberg. I come home to Atlanta, and I get to see my family and my friends. So I'm usually – Christmas Day was very pleasant. The joy for me is I get to make um, – around seeing all these friends that have stayed with me despite the fact that for nine years I've been absent from you know the city that we grew up in together hmm. so you're saying they uh, care care about you or put up with you or something what the... they put up with me they stay yeah. friends with me despite yeah. the long absence yeah see I thought the conclusion to that story was you're the kind of friend that people can only handle once a year oh man that may be the case <laughs> maybe actually that's the reason why they're so generous and kind during because they know they don't have to do year. this again right they're like you know, oh, okay i've had all the macintosh i can handle now <laughs> till next year right <laughs> well that's, that's a more likely explanation yeah it probably is <laughs> well we are here to talk about end of the year stuff uh this is a podcast about reading about books so we are going to discuss um, the things that we read this year uh, on this podcast and otherwise. Um, we're going to talk about some of our favorite things that we read, and uh, you know, we want to hear from you as well. So head over to that uh, handy-dandy new Facebook page for Close Reads, and um, I posted a comment on there that uh, asks what were your, some of your favorite things that you read this year, and uh, several people have been responding to that. So if you want to jump in on that conversation, you can head over there. Uh, if you go to Facebook, just click on the, t- the Groups tab, and then uh, type in Close Reads Podcast or something like that, and it should come up. I love that one person responded uh, with a question on how to interpret your question because I laughed and I thought, oh, if only you knew how much David loves having questions interpreted in multiple ways. Like you love the sociological aspect of how are people going to interpret my open-ended question? (laughs) So that that person made your day and she was feeling embarrassed, but I was like, oh no, that was a plus. Yeah, so so head over to... uh, 
to Facebook to to join that um to join that group if you want to you know continue the conversations and can, you know discuss some of the things you hear on the podcast. Uh, also, um, this uh, will be the first episode that we are going to post on the new um, solo feed for Close Reads. So we'll continue to post shows on the main podcast network um, feed, you know, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. So if you want to, you know, just subscribe one time and have all the Cersei shows there, you know, you can continue to do that. But if you want to have a separate feed for Close Reads, either just because you want to have them separated or because you really only listen to Close Reads, then uh, that'll be available too. So in your in whatever app you're using, you know, the the uh, Apple Podcast app or Stitcher or whatever it is, uh, just search um, for Close Reads and that should pop up. Um, it might take a day or two to, to populate um, the first episode. Um, and we will not be able to post all the old archived episodes but you can still find those on the uh, just on the regular old feed or on the website um, under the multimedia tab so um that's a little bit of business out of the way real quick on the i see i don't i don't have mac so i don't use itunes so i have a question um if if let's say a new listener finds us on on our new feed will it say something to indicate that they can find previous episodes somewhere else yeah yeah we can well it's going to have a description there yep all right, cool. Um, you know iTunes is available on more than Mac, right? Like, you know you can download it to a PC. Well, I know, but I I have... Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't like iTunes. Please, we're not going to start off the new year with me, like, you know, getting on my soapbox against Apple. I have I, enough things to put my hand on the chopping block for. Worry, I'm going to take it off for that. I don't use iTunes at all for anything whatsoever in my life at all. So um, I'm with you on that. Okay. You guys, let's talk books. Let's yeah, talk let's... books. So we've talked about several books this year. We focused uh, quite a bit on Pride and Prejudice, obviously, The Wind and the Willows and uh, Jaber Crow. Those were, the, you know, then, and then here and there, a few short stories like the one we did around Halloween time. So I don't want to focus too much on the books that we read on this show because people generally know what we think of those books um, if they've been listening. Oh, man, I was hoping if... just to recap my own thoughts about my own thoughts. <laughs> And if they, if they haven't, yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, <laughs> if, if, uh, if they haven't listened, you can, you know, if you want to recap Angelina's thoughts, you can head back over to, you know, to the old episodes. Um, so I want to, I want to hear more about what you guys were reading this year outside of the podcast. Now, uh, Tim, you've had a, a pretty hectic year with things at Gutenberg and, uh, Angelina, you, um, had a move and, um, all that kind of stuff going on. And then I had a baby this year. So um, there's lots of reasons that, you know, we may have not read as much as we typically do in a year, but I know that we still read some and I think it'll be fun to discuss, you know, what, what we thought of yeah. those books. Uh, Tim, and David, are we confining ourselves to books of literature or can we talk about books outside of, of, you know, like narrative fiction? Oh yeah, for sure. Today's... Outside, okay. Anything, you know, anything you want. Um, and you know, if I think that it's, you know, with outside the confines of, of whatever the parameters are that I'll make up as I go along, then I'll let you know. Um, okay. Tim, I'd love, love to love hear... the shifting <laughs> landscape of the rules of this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got to kind of go with the flow. Uh, so Tim, I would love to hear without just naming titles, like what was your reading life yeah. like the, in 2016? What, what was your reading? Uh, what was your experience I... with books? I had so this probably was the best year of reading that I've had maybe since I can remember. <laughs> I had I, no, I'm dead serious. I had a string of about four hits 
all back to back to back. Completely different kind of genres of books. But I finished one and I thought, oh my goodness, that was so great. Oh, what can I read that will even compare to that? And then the next book that I read, it compared in quality. And then the next book. So I had a superb year of reading. Best year I've had in that I can remember. In terms of the quality of the books that you read. In terms of the quality of the books. And also, you know, do you guys ever have those moments where you just think, oh, this is the book for me at this particular moment? Oh, yeah. For sure. You know? And I think all of the books that I, this this string of, you know, three or four books that I read all in a row, they were just the exact right book for me at the exact right moment. So you have a guardian angel librarian. I won't. Apparently so. Apparently so. (laughs) Guiding your Amazon mouse choices. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Did. Did you, um, how many books would you estimate that you read this year? Does that include books that I read for close reads and books that I read for Gutenberg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, your job, if your job is to read, it still counts. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a hard one. I, mean, I, like I would 20 guess 20 plus. Yeah, I'd guess 30 plus. So how many of those were outside of the job? either for the podcast or for Gutenberg? Like just purely for your own edification No, actually, you know what? I need to say, if I include work stuff, it's probably 50 plus. Okay. You know, but a lot of those I've read, I've read before. So right, I just right. got done reading, you know, whatever, the, the um, Trial of Socrates, Plato's Apology, and I've read it five times probably. But it still counts. Yeah, yeah. And I would say tw- probably 20 of those were curriculum reading. Okay. That's pretty good. That's a pretty solid year. Um, so, Angelina, what was your experience with reading like this year in terms of quality, in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, quantity as well? And realizing, of course, that, yeah, like you said, you had a move and a lot of hectic stuff going on in your life. So, um, this but, Yeah, is, this was this is, one you, of the you, weirdest you, years I've ever had. Yeah, you seemed like you were a little anxious about me asking this question coming into it. So we're just going to go. I was, and I felt like there was, I felt like there were negotiations before the show about whether or not I was going to be asked something like this. And boom, here I am, bus coming along, and you threw me (laughs) under it. It, Uh, it, it, It's a, it's a judge. It's a, you know, it's a no judge zone. Don't worry, we're not going to judge you. Okay, because before the show started, I said I was going to be the everyman. um, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like, okay, I'm having this scene, you know, at the end of Amadeus when Salieri comes out and it's like, I am the king of mediocrity. Like, I, <laughs> this is what I'm going to be in this episode. Anybody else who's having this moment where you're looking at everybody's Facebook posts and they're like, I read 472 books this year and I exceeded my goal. And you want to let, like go in the corner and cry and just be like, I'm a loser because I don't read. I am going to represent you today on this show because this is how I feel right now. Just listening to Tim talk about his reading year. Like, I, like when David said for a number i was like hey hey how's that how's that from a state of rest i feel anxiety when you ask (laughs) for my number like we're not supposed to quantify things here i say as i have my numbered journal of exactly how many books i read this year however (laughs) um it was just a really weird year for me um one i had to come to terms with the fact that if i was writing a book that was necessarily going to mean i read less other things right and that was it was a hard thing for me to come to terms with. I kept trying to, you know, have my normal reading life and then also write a book. That that was not compatible. Um, so it was just really weird in, in, in a lot of different ways. One of the things that happened was uh, in 2015, I had made a, 
a point of asking my friends for like, who are the new authors? Because I, I, I suffer from reverse chronological snobbery, right? If the author isn't alive, I don't want to touch it. Like it took forever for someone to convince me to read Wendell Berry, seriously. Uh, so I'm, I, would, I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to give these modern authors a, a try. And so 2015 was about me engaging with a lot of new, new people that I had not previously uh, read. 2016, I had decided, was going to be the year of the reread, right? Like I was going to deliberately mm. try to reread some things that had been meaningful to me in the past. What ended up happening, though, was so bizarre because for the first time ever, what ended up happening is this was a year in which not only I read things that I had read before, but I read the same book multiple times in the same year. And this happened tons was just one of those things so like i taught pride and prejudice in the spring and read it and then we decided to do a podcast on it so i was literally reading all these books just a few months apart i read beowulf in back-to-back months paralandra like three months apart sir gowan like four months apart like, all the i was reading all these books in the same year um which i had never done before but it was so so fascinating to me to see that because you know we always talk about how when you revisit a book you're a different person right? And it yeah. means something different to you. Uh, that still held up when you read a book a month later. Like, how is that even possible? Wow. <laughs> you know, that, that like, um, so yeah, I just, it, man, I read so many things uh, multiple times. That that was what my year was like. So David, are you even there? I'm hearing that sound again. I'm here. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a strange year of reading the same books over and over. Um, and I did read a few new things here or there, but mostly it was just uh, re- rereading things and uh, just thinking about that experience, especially when it was back to back like that. So in the end, how many books would you say you read this year? Since you're going to be the everyman and represent people who <laughs> okay, haven't read Okay, I'm going to be the everyman and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit that it was only 37 books and I'm really embarrassed about that. 30, 30 okay, Angelina, share, share Angelina I think you need to do like a reevaluation about things that you get embarrassed about. <laughs> Come no, on. You look at people's Facebook numbers. 37 is paltry. Like, okay, so here's the thing. Like, I'm imagining that our readers think of, our listeners, I mean, think of us as like living in the in the ivory tower. Well, maybe Tim is because he works at a college. But, you know, we're, we're in the ivory tower. And we're just reading all day long. And we're just, you know, truth, beauty, goodness all day long. You know, that is not my life. I live my life in the trenches, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying so to get I, would, I would be willing to guess that like 95% of the people who you are Facebook friends with have not read more than 30 books in a year. Yes, and those people that you're not Facebook friends with, it's not like a sampling of the American public by any means. <laughs> Come on. I should not I, judge myself. It's I, haven't read that, I haven't read that. Angelina, I didn't read that many. Okay, that makes me feel somewhat better. But most of this was books that I, I read for, for teaching or the podcast or research. It just, so, I mean, it just, it felt different because it wasn't a year in which I was like curling up with a book. I just didn't have the time. Well, of course you didn't. Of course you didn't. You had a, you had a huge year, tremendous it's, year but, of change. But I mean, that's still called reading. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've got a question. I've got a question, David. Yeah. Before we get into kind of like, you know, like what were our favorite books yeah. of the year or something yeah. like that. I kind of want to ask, what was your most obscure book of the year? Meaning, like, you read this book, nobody else would have any interest in this book. It's just like a particularly peculiar thing that you're really fascinated with. 
can you think of what that book was for you guys? I can answer that one of two ways. I, I can go obscure in terms of like some scholarly obscure thing that I read, and I can go obscure in the other way, like in the Christian classical world, I'm guessing no one else read this bestseller that I read. Oh. <laughs> so I, I, could, go, I could go either way. Like, one is going to make me sound really hoity-toity and smart, and the other people are going to be like, for real, you read that? <laughs> the most, uh, yeah, that's... The- the most obscure is that that's what you the word you yeah. used yeah what would you say angelina if you want to say like obscure scholarly it was an art and tradition in sir gowan and the green knight by larry benson and i read that twice this year <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what i was looking for that's just like <laughs> you're just like nerding it out on it all so i bet what are you kidding that was it was so amazingly good ah i bet i believe it print, but seriously find this bad boy it was amazing david do you just, have one i could do uh, a whole podcast just on that book not, I'm it in um not like that at least not that i read cover to cover i don't read books like that cover to cover um so my reading life is probably a little bit like i read i read 27 books cover to cover um many of which were children's books because a lot of my reading time ended up being like to my kids Um, yeah of course but um i read a lot of books that i didn't that i read like you know a third of or i'd read like long passages of to for for a purpose you know but i didn't read a book like that cover to cover um but i've never done that in my life so i don't that that sounds like a terrible waste of time um but uh I just died a little bit on the air. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, actually, that's not true. When I was in college, I would have had to um, for research purposes and such. But um, but that in that way, my dad and I are in total agreement. We never read books like that cover to cover. Um, huh. You kind of you pick. You kind of cherry pick a little bit. Oh, yeah. Bit I'll there. read like – it'll take me five – if I'm going to – I don't know how long that book is. But if that book, say, 300 pages, it might take me two years to read it. And I'll read a chapter – like a month, or I'll read, you know, I'll read a chapter here, and then I'll go read something else. But it was an ex- it. it it was an exception. I mean, it was it was good. <laughs> and you know, most scholarly books are not good. I, I'm not. I don't, gosh, I don't want. I'm going to look like such an, a, a dorky nerd. I mean, that I, you've looked like I, a dorky I, I nerd it. since the first episode. So just accept this it. This is true. This is true. <laughs> I'm just. This is the role I have. You know, my whole life I've the, been trying to live this role. But the, to answer the question in my own way. The most obscure book that I read was probably a book called Ashenden, which is a which is a, a sort of a novel, more like a collection of short stories or loosely tied short stories um, by Mom Somerset Mom. Oh yeah, and, and it was a early. It's like the first real spy novel. Um, oh, and like uh, Le Carre's characters are based on it, and then. Um, Ian, it was one of Ian Fleming's favorite books, and James Bond is based on the character Ashenden. Um, and then um, uh, Graham Greene also was like a was the one that like made this book popular. And Mom actually had been a spy uh, during I think World War One era or pre World War One something like that. David yeah. loves his spy novels. No, yeah, I do. So like my uh, that's where I I read I always read several spy novels in, a, in any given year. So you'll find spy crime novels things like that. That's like my low lower brow you know but i also depends like i read older ones um i don't read new releases so that's probably the most obscure nerd my version of nerdy nerdy breed this year what about you 
Uh, it was called The Best Actors in the World, and it was about Shakespeare's acting company and the different actors that came through his acting company. There's the, and it, it sounds like kind of like a, you know, something that more people will read than just me, but it's so, it's such a scholarly book. And the guy, the author, David Grote, I think is how it's pronounced, would, would, would he just did all of this research about what actors in Shakespeare's troops likely played what roles. And he, and he has these theories that are really fascinating. For example, um, if you look at Shakespeare's dramas, he has wonderful female characters who, of course, would have been played by a male, a young male. He has a string of wonderful female characters, Lady Macbeth being one of them, uh, Queen Anne from Richard III being another one. And then they just stop. He just stops writing really great female characters. He always wrote great male characters, but there's just kind of a string of great female characters. And the theory in the book is he had a really great boy actor that mm -hmm. played those roles and the boy <clears throat> actor's voice broke. And so Shakespeare couldn't cast him anymore in these female roles. So it's full of fascinating little stuff like oh. that, that, yeah, I you had know. heard that too. Actually, I, I would totally read that book because I'm always one of the things that fascinates me that I tell my students um, when we study Shakespeare is that, you know, his genius only increases when you consider all of the things he had to juggle. So like when you sit down to write a novel, you just have this vision in your head and you just write whatever you want. Right. Right. But Shakespeare literally had an acting troupe and he knew who had, you know, this guy's a great swordsman. This guy's got a great singing voice. Right. He's he's incorporating all of that into Absolutely. his story. And then you have to keep in mind that like these guys all have egos. I mean, these are actors. No offense. Absolutely. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. But right. They, they're. <laughs> He goes, and so like he's he's you know you gotta imagine Shakespeare's writing this, and somebody comes in, and he's like, uh, why does that guy have more lines than me? Um, I need more, I need to be mm -hmm. on stage more. Like he's, and so like he he's telling a story, but he's also juggling all these personalities and needs and egos, and I mean, that amazes me. That he yeah. could produce the work he is in in that kind of situation. You might like this book, Angelina. The best actors in the world. It's really good. I just wrote it down. I, that's totally up my alley. David's yawning. David has fallen asleep in this conversation. <laughs> just, All right, let's talk about our best I'm books. Now let's talk about yeah. our best books. Okay, Sorry so, to derail us with the most yeah, obscure no, question. So, I actually had something to say. So, so here's what I want to do for the best for the quote, quote unquote best book section. I'm not going to ask you to like rank all the books that you read this year. Thank God. But we'll take turns, <laughs> and I want you to share. Uh, I want you to have in, in mind three books that you really loved that you would say to our readers, like, this is a book you should read. Um, okay. and oh, then wait, you, now you're changing the question. You I have to recommend it, too? And, and you, well, you don't, okay, fine. You don't have to recommend it, but <laughs> something that you were excited by. And we're not, I'm not going to ask you for all three. We're going to do one at a time. So, uh, Tim, why don't you go first? What is one of the books that you read this year that you got the most excited about that you, um, that, that, Hopefully you can recommend. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely recommend The Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Yeah, that book's been getting read press. It. Oh, my goodness, because it is absolutely wonderful. Um, so the subtitle is A Memoir of Family and Culture in Crisis. Um, 
I read this book in two nights and it's probably, I don't know, it's like maybe 220 pages. It's not a short book. I read it in two nights cause it was so riveting. Hmm. Um, it's a story of a guy who ended up going to, to Yale law school, but he comes from, these are his words, not mine. Uh, uh, he's like, I'm a redneck. I'm a hillbilly. I'm trailer trash. And it's just kind of the story of him growing up in uh, Kentucky. In fact, not far from where my people are from in Kentucky, about 30 miles away from where my people are from. And then he moved and his family moved to Ohio. And it's kind of it's, – it's, the narrative is just about his own life and his own family. But as he kind of accomplishes many things on his way to Yale Law School – He's kind of constantly comparing the way that his family and his neighborhood <laughs> handled things like arguments and disagreement and education mm-hmm. compared with people who, um, you know, were living lives that were, by a worldly standard, very successful. They owned their own homes. They made a good salary. Their kids went to, you know, great schools. I can't recommend this book highly enough. Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot about it. Um, you know, like I read about it in the New York Times and uh, a couple other places. I think maybe the New Yorker. And uh, it's been on social media all over the place. I, it's got a cool cover, too. It's got a great cover. Part of the reason the book is so good is that he is both – he is really loyal to his family. He you can tell he loves his family and he loves where he came from. And he's also – not afraid to be critical and just say, you know, these are the kind of behaviors that are keeping us where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Angelina, have you heard of that one? I had heard about it. It's been getting a lot of buzz on the social media, Yeah, but yeah. I, I did not read it. But I mean, I remember when Tim read it, he was really excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, what are you, what were you excited about? Give us one. You know, I'm sitting here looking at my reading log and thinking this is such a hard, you know, because that's the kind of feeling you have like the first time you read something. Right. So I didn't really have that experience this year. But um, so I will I will I'm going to throw one out there, though, that um, is very meaningful to me that I reread this year. And and so, okay, I'm going to slip back into Angelina's literary therapy here. So when we started, (laughs) I just feel like I'm speaking specifically to all these other bookish girls out there who are like, I wonder what wisdom Angelina can pass on to me right now. Um, Guys, I'm sorry. But uh, so when we started reading Pride and Prejudice, a lot of my friends and listeners started start making a big deal about the fact that I was Elizabeth Bennett and I was looking for my Mr. Darcy, right? Well, I, I didn't actually think that that was entirely accurate. And I was talking to my best friend about it, and she agreed that I was not Elizabeth Bennett. There were too many important differences to make me actually want a, a Mr. Darcy. And so I said, no, 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 I'm not Elizabeth Bennett. I'm Harriet Vane. And as soon as she said that, she was like, oh, my God, you really are. You're Harriet Vane. And I said, that's right. I'm looking not for Mr. Darcy. I'm looking for Lord Peter Whimsey. So I reread the Harriet Vane novels by Dorothy Sayers um, uh, after that conversation. Um, and, and so if our listeners don't know, Dorothy Sayers, you know, the, the, the brilliant translator of Dante, the Christian apologist, the, you know, the honorary inkling, um, the, the woman who gave us the lost tools of learning, uh, she was a detective novelist and her books are fabulous. Um, they're just, they're so fun, but they're so insightful in their social critique, extremely insightful in their understanding of male and female relationships. Um, Harriet Vane, the character is actually just a thinly veiled uh, portrait of Dorothy Sayers herself. And Lord Peter Whimsey was the character she created, which was her ideal man. 
And so the series of books in which those two characters interact, their their meeting, their courtship, their relationship uh, is just a ton of fun for me to read. And I relate to it very strongly. So, you know, if our if our listeners are looking for a really fun read with some just dead on social criticism and uh, and and, you know, kind of smart girl guy books. (laughs) <laughs> Dorothy Sayers detective novels that, that, that there's where you need to go most That's of them right. are pretty lighthearted. her one dark one is murder must advertise which is one of my favorites mm-hmm. yeah, what yeah. a great title yeah murder well, she, must advertise yeah oh yeah she's great she was in advertising and so boy um that one's like her darkest book like in terms of really critiquing that lost generation of the 20s and kind yeah. of the nihilistic lives they were living Maybe we should do, for fun, maybe we should do a uh, Dorothy Sayers mystery novel here on Close Reads. I bet people would that's enjoy that. That's a great that. idea. I bet people, I think that's a great idea. I thought about uh, suggesting that when we were kind of tossing around titles. It could go, um, you know, those are books that you can read pretty quickly, but you could have a lot of fun really breaking down what she's doing and just enjoying the story. Because you, mm-hmm. you can enjoy a quote-unquote simple story, but also, you know, really look at the craft because it, the truly great writers who can write stories like that, like the the things that go into the craft and the artistry, are, are really remarkable and be really fun to talk about. We'll have to. It would, it. and you know, and, and her detective novels are a lot like P.G. Woodhouse novels in, in the sense that you kind of have to read them all to really, you know, grasp the world that she's creating. You know. Oh yeah. I feel like anybody who reads just one novel is going to get such a skewed view of who Lord Peter Whimsey is because it's who he is over the course of all the books uh, and the way that he changes. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, we'll have to put. So up, that's my recommendation. We're going to put up a poll on the on the the group, the the Facebook group for Close Reads, and we'll we'll give you guys a few options to to help us pick what we're going to read, and we'll include um, Murder Must Advertise on that list and. Um, We'll see what happens with the with the poll there. Uh, so one of my they, yeah yeah. What's yours, David? One of my books is um, is a book by uh, one of the most accomplished film critics working right now. His name is A.O. Scott, and he is uh, I believe he is still the film critic at the New York Times, and he teaches at Wesleyan College. Um, and he wrote a book this year called Better Living Through Criticism, How to Think About Art, Pleasure, Beauty, and Truth. Mm. And oh, wow. it's kind of a defense of, um, of, of criticism, like that, that criticism is an act of creation, like that, that the critic is an artist too. Um, and so he gets into a lot of that and like, and, and like you can't say that it, you know he he basically takes to task the idea that a critic is just a failed artist and stuff like that um and uh but he talks about how like true criticism we it's not it can't be with the way we the way we live right now like this like the posture of criticism the posture of the critic that like is so rampant um you know, in social media where we're all ready to just criticize everything, right? Like that there's, yes. that it's much deeper than that. And that that's what makes yes. it an art. Like the true criticism is thoughtful and contemplative and slow to slow to react. And, um, and that's not great for the 24 hour news cycle and all that kind of stuff. But, but when done right, criticism is a truly artistic, um, enlightening, like, uh, mm-hmm. cr- creative endeavor. So that's a really, mm-hmm. really cool book. I recommend that another good cover. Um, yeah, it's probably. I don't know if it's on soft cover yet. It came out this year, so it, it's like. Can like, you say the name again? Yeah, so it's better living through criticism. How to think about art, pleasure, beauty, and truth. 
And this guy's and, really well read. There's lots of like, you know, there's lots of classical stuff in it. Lots of you know, he. You can tell that he has read a lot of literature. It's like he's not just a guy who, who just like watches you know movies all the time. And of course, if you've ever read his film criticism, one of the reasons he is the most successful and beloved film critic working is that he is so knowledgeable about other art other like other art forms and he can and he huh. can bring that to his film criticism so like his David film is, criticism is like scholarly and and popular at the same time when a new movie comes out and you're curious about whether or not you should go see it do you go look up scott's that's his name right a.o scott yeah do you look up a.o scott's review and does before you go see the movie so i have like a like for tv and movie i have like three or four critics that i turn to at all times that like i trust kind of implicitly yeah, yeah. He's, he's definitely yeah. one of them but that doesn't mean that like if he re- reviews a movie negatively i'm not going to go see it but if he reviews a movie and there's like certain things he says about it then i might i might skip out on it or not go to the theater but i right. have little kids and i go to the theater like only to see star wars you know so <laughs> <laughs> right it's, kind of, it's like an event it has to be like a real real thing right Yes, but yeah, like I'll go back and read his stuff on the movie. That like, if I watched a movie and I want to learn more about it or think more about it, I'll go find his his um his stuff. Um, okay, let's let's go around to another one now. Tim, what's another one that you that you were excited about this year? The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. H A I D T. Yeah, I think you mentioned that on this show before, right? I think I did because that was I read- think so weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And let me just tell you. Um, so I live in Eugene, Oregon, as you guys know, which is like a little bit left of left, you know, culturally speaking, politically speaking. And I come back to Atlanta and North Georgia, and it's pretty conservative. And so I kind of am always trafficking in these two worlds and this book is just so helpful at understanding why let me let me um cast this the right way when i listen to my friends in eugene talk about the presidential election the things that they burn about um are so different. Just the questions that are being asked are so fundamentally different than the questions that are being asked when I come back, when I come home to Atlanta. It's not, and each side um, looks at the other side and says, how could you not ask the question that I'm asking, right? And so, of course, because each of them are asking different sorts of questions and have different sort of what Jonathan Haidt would call um, moral impulses or moral – they have differently shaped moral palettes that even before a discussion begins, um, all of the sort of taste centers of the left and the right are completely misaligned for any sort of discussion. So Jonathan Haidt's book is – a book about it's a book of social psychology he's a trained social psychologist and he is an avowed secular liberal um and he just <laughs> he would probably be the first to say, like i just did not understand why conservatives thought the way that they thought until he moved to india and he was like oh i'm the weird one here the world is so not like me and so he has just been pursuing um, since that time 
kind of an inquiry into what makes, um, how to describe it, what are kind of the absolute moral impulses that all human beings have? And I use the word impulses very specifically. He um, thinks that everyone has these six kind of impulses, but liberals highlight these few, conservatives highlight a different grouping, and because they highlight different impulses, um, when it comes time to actually discuss, like, is this be is this uh, legislation good or bad? Can't even really have a discussion. It's pre-framed mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning that you can't even really have a discussion. He's not so pessimistic as that, but that's kind of his starting point. Hmm. If you, so I'll just say one more thing. If you are, um really entrenched in your viewpoint and you cannot understand how someone would not share your viewpoint, I would go farther than to say you ought to read this book. I might even say it's kind of like a moral duty to read a book like this. Hmm. Wow. So then Angelina, should you read it? I mean, no, Tim and I talk about this stuff all the time. That's speaking my language. I always have the sense that the two sides are just talking past each other and not using words in the same way and presuming things about the other side, which mm-hmm. gets to, you know, Tim's thing about uh, they're asking different sets of questions. And I think that they each presume that the other is answering the question. But the, exactly. the truth is the, the other side is not thinking about that question at all. They're not disagreeing with you. That's just not even on their radar to think like that. Mm-hmm. For both yeah. sides. Hmm. Okay, well. And I think what's good, what's really good about this book um, is that Jonathan Haidt, you can hear it in the subtitle, why good people mm-hmm. are divided by politics and religion. It's, um, he may have kind of like a political viewpoint that he's coming from, but he's like, man, they're good people on both sides. Um, and he really constantly, he, he treats his, inquiry with a great deal of generosity and open-mindedness and kindness. It sounds like the kind of book that is really needed right now. Right? Oh, goodness, when yes. After this Angelina. election, you've got people on both sides, people on each side of this election looking at the other side like they've grown another head. Absolutely. You know, like right. Each side is completely incomprehensible to the other, and that mm-hmm. that is far more concerning to me than the fact that we disagree. I don't know that we disagree disagree i don't i don't know that we have enough common discussion to say that we disagree you know right. <laughs> we're just foreigners to each other yeah yeah we, we we're two like nationalities inhabiting the same country right mm. well, which was always something that the founders worried about mm. being so big you know yeah well for the sake of time we should move on um <laughs> this is not close reads about one book. This is close reads about six, nine books today. Yeah, I took over there, David. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. Uh, Angelina, what's what's your next one? All right. So again, keeping with my theme of the year of the reread, um, this was a book I've probably read for my seventh and eighth time this year, something like that. Um, but this was the first year that I actually fell in love with this book. Like at huh. the end of teaching it, I thought... It only took eight times. I, I love this. It only took eight times, right? And maybe when I say the book, everybody's going to be like, oh, I know, I know why it took so long. Um, this was the year I fell in love with Beowulf. Oh, yeah. oh really? Yeah, yes. that makes sense. It was one of these books that it was like, eh, I'm teaching. 
mention it because it's, you know, historically important. And then it was like, well, I can appreciate what went into the making of this. I can appreciate what he's trying to do. But this was the first time at the end that I thought, oh, I love him. You fell I in love, love this story. Absolutely. And part of it was that I used a new translation this year. Can, um, I, can I guess what your new translation was? Oh, I don't think it's going to be hard. Go ahead. Seamus Haney? No, that's the first one I ever used. Tolkien? Nope. No. Who? Who was it? Burton Raffel. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Duh. Burton Raffel. <laughs> and, uh, and, and his, I had read You have a, a connection to said, him, no? Well, I do, but that's part of why it was the last one I picked up. Okay. Right, because I did not. Burton Raphael, um, the, the the famous scholar, uh, was my professor in graduate school, and so yes, I tr- When it comes to all matters literary, he's my go-to authority, and I and I trust him uh, for criticism and interpretation and stuff. Um, but for a weird kind of counterintuitive reason, I resisted his translation of Beowulf because I knew him. I don't know if even that makes sense, but I don't know. Sure, it just it makes didn't, sense. It didn't seem as fancy to me as Seamus Haney. So I resisted it for a long time. And then it just kept coming back on my radar. And I read where people were saying not only was it uh, one of the most accurate ones, but that it, the poetry was just a work of art in its own right. So I, I gave it a shot and just fell in love with the poetry and fell in love with the book. And then Brian Phillips had asked on Facebook, you know, what's the best Beowulf translation? So I put my two cents in there for Burton Raphael and gotten very much the same response as like David did. Ah, but you know him. Uh, but then Wes yeah. Callahan said, no, I'm with Angelina on this. I think that's the best one. So Man, I felt very I'm, validated. I am making a change because I do our Beowulf discussion at Gutenberg and I've used Seamus Haney, and I think Seamus Haney is the only translation that I've read of Beowulf. So I might, I might make a switch here, Angelina. You are oh, shaping like, the minds you of you young go. people as you speak. <laughs> and this is like the four dollars signet classic too. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, but what I have heard about the Seamus Haney translation is that it's a really good Seamus Haney poem. It may not oh, be. Oh, really? Right. Um, whereas Dr. Raphael, uh, he set, he literally set the standard for translation. He, he invented the whole school of thought on how, how, where, how do you sort of harmonize the need for poetry and poetic expression and the need for an accurate translation. And what does it even mean to have an accurate translation? So he really set the standard for that. And, um, it's just, it's just beautiful, beautiful language, beautiful poetry. And uh, so I really do think that had a, a large uh, role in my in my finally coming to love it. I just it was one of those things where I was just letting the words roll around in my mouth. And and mm. I taught it twice. I taught it twice. I taught it once in my medieval class and once in a Circe online intensive. And that was the response I got from my students as well. It was a new tra- translation for most of them. And many of them were teachers who had been teaching Beowulf a long time. And they all just expressed delight with this particular translation and really, really enjoyed it. Mm. That's ma- I am I am making a note of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Beowulf is a challenging book for a lot of people, and so no yeah, doubt, no doubt, the right translation makes a big difference. Okay, so David, how about you? Yes, okay, another one. Um, oh, another one of my books is written by one of my favorite film critics, and that is a book called "How to Survive the Apocalypse: Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and oh, yeah. Politics at the End of the World." Oh, yeah. By Alyssa Wilkinson and Robert Joustra. Now, I wrote about this book for Think Christian, and I interviewed Alyssa uh, here on the Cersei Podcast Network. So, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know what, if that affects this choice, but I really love this book. Um, it's it's cultural criticism 
pop culture criticism, film criticism, TV, I mean, literature and TV criticism. It's all that all wrapped into one. But the basic gist of the book is it's kind of a take on Charles Taylor, um, who is a Catholic political philosopher who's, you know, kind of been pretty popular for a long time in that world, award winning, um, very scholarly in a lot of his work. Um, so, you know, probably only a handful of our readers, you know, have have heard, you know, heard of him. Um, yeah, Charles Taylor's a secular age is seven hundred yeah. pages long, I believe, of dense social philosophy. Yeah, yeah, hard yeah, to yeah. Read. So, so that's that. Like, it's a take on it. So they're taking Joustra and Wilkinson are taking a look at Taylor's book, A Secular Age. You know, in, in, in that book, he's kind of presenting a survey of what he defines as secular, and he argues mm-hmm. that secular culture is. It's not that God is not there in the world. Like it's, it's not about the absence of God, but it's more about an, what he calls an anthropocentric attitude towards religious life, which is which values, you know, like individual choice above everything else. Yeah. So they're taking they're taking this idea and then they're looking at it um, w- within the context of our pop culture, and they're saying that essentially the apocalypse is actually already upon us, and that these works of pop culture are. Are like evidence of it having come. So they look at shows like Mad Men. They look at um, things like Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead and Battlestar Galactica and Breaking Bad and things like that. And they're saying that, that those, that these shows are like, there are collective social anxieties aired on prime time is the line they use. Huh. Mm. And that those shows exist precisely because of that anthropocentric perspective that, um, that Taylor is, Taylor's kind of laying out so that so they do a really interesting job of just looking at these shows it's a really fun book um they're also pretty well versed in um Christian culture particularly like the evangelical subculture and so there's a lot of stuff in there about um like uh different elements within those cultures I'll just put it that way yeah um and so that's a really it's a really fun but um but also really smart really uh thoughtful book about the kind of things that are representative of our pop culture and what that means about us and like how to interpret them and, and, and how to approach them. And, um, but not in an overly scholarly way. It's, it's not a terribly long book, but it's a really, uh, really good book, really fun book, especially if you, I like remember any you of those shows. <laughs> yeah. And if you head over to like somewhere back in, I want to say June, I think I interviewed Alyssa and then May, May or June when the book came out. And then I also wrote about it for think Christian back way back then as well. So, um, my, my that was of, a book that I had really hoped to read this year. I need to, I need to make a point of that. It's really it sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's say fun. the title again, the title and the authors again, David. Okay, so the book is called How to Survive the Apocalypse: Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World, and it's by Al- Alyssa Wilkinson and Robert Joustra. Alyssa Wilkinson has she teaches at King's College in New York, and then she also was the chief. She like an editor over at Christianity Today, and she film critic, and now she's the she's a writer for Vox dot com. Yeah, I didn't realize she taught at King's College. I got a friend that goes there. Yeah, I yeah. have to ask her if she's taking her classes. Yep. Um, okay, so Tim, your last one. My last one is this is a little bit of a nerd one. Um, a Jesuit off Broadway, behind the scenes with faith, doubt, forgiveness. And Forgiveness by James Martin. So I'm just going to say the title again. A Jesuit Off-Broadway, Behind the Scenes with Faith, Doubt, and Forgiveness. So it's a book. <laughs> Here's the one of my favorite playwrights. In fact, he just won the Pulitzer for 
uh, drama this year, Stephen Adley Gerges, he was writing a play. The play was called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. And he wanted um, a kind of like a theological advisor to come in and make sure that the play that he was writing was like theologically really well informed. The play was basically putting Judas Iscariot on trial again. And it was asking all sorts of like these big questions about how could you, how can you um, call Judas guilty if he was kind of preordained to play the role of the betrayer to the Son of God? And so Stephen Adley Gerges, the playwright, asked James Martin, a Jesuit priest from New York City, to come in and serve as the theological advisor to this crew of really super decorated top tier actors. Um, wow. Oh, it is so good. It is so good. So the actors, so it was directed by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, oh, Sam wow. Rockwell played the role of Judas. Um, and so what it is, is Stephen Adley Gerges, the playwright, is well known for staging all of his plays in urban areas and among like the downtrodden and the just people who are living in the worst, poorest circumstances in the United States. Um, so can you imagine him casting St. Monica, the mother of Augustine, and p making her, I think she is a witness for the defense of Judas Iscariot and she's played by this very robust black woman. She's playing kind of like the role of a lawyer. And she has the coarsest mouth you can possibly imagine. So that's what his, that's what Stephen Adley Gerges's plays are about. They're really thoughtful, really kind of unvarnished spiritual quests among his characters. Um, and I would recommend them. Please let me finish the whole sentence. I would recommend them <laughs> highly to anyone who wants to have like a frank discussion uh, about like how do people like what do we think about God and what do we think about guilt and sin if if you can tolerate like extremely coarse language. Don't read this in front of your middle schoolers without reading it first yourself and kind of like yeah because the language is very rough, but the, the content is extraordinary. Great book. Great book. All right, we got to move on quickly here, so I'm going to – not to cut you short, but I want to move no, no, no. Over, quickly over to Angelina. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to choose something from the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? If, if it was going nerdy and scholarly, I'm, I'm going to go bestseller right now, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw my curveball that I mentioned before the show, and then Tim wanted to know what was my curveball going to be, and I said, no, I want, I want your on-air reaction. So here we go. In a year <laughs> in which I read Northrop Frye's An Anatomy of Criticism twice, and it's got to be the densest, most difficult scholarly work I've ever read, okay? In the year in which I read that twice, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this as my third book. Ready? You ready for this? Yes. Modern Romance by Aziz Ansari. <laughs> okay. Is this a curveball? That's great. Aziz Ansari of Parks and Rec. And... Parks and Rec and, and hilarious stand-up. Um... Although not suitable for work. <laughs> Just to be clear. 
His, his right. stand up, don't watch it with your kids or at work. Oh, goodness, no, goodness, no. Um, so, um, yeah, this will be a highly qualified um, kind of discussion of, of this book. So, um, Aziz Ansari worked with a sociologist to sort of try to make sense of the modern dating landscape, particularly dating in the digital age. And, you know, considering all the things we talked about with Pride and Prejudice, the things that we touched on there and, and how much the landscape has changed, I thought a lot about the things that he said in, in this book. Um, it's very interesting because he has no agenda, right? He's not, he's not trying to prove something. He really is just trying to understand. It's, it's very investigative. Um, now, it, it, it's not coming from a Christian conservative perspective. Um, he's not a traditionalist, meaning that he's not he's not coming in here presuming that the way things have always been done is necessarily the best way. On the other hand, he's not uh, against tradition. His parents uh, married in India in an arranged marriage and had a happy union. So you're talking about the most traditional upbringing that you know mm -hmm. he, he could have been exposed to. He just is is trying to navigate what is dating in in the in the digital age, and I, I found it truly fascinating, and I thought it really challenged. Um, a, a lot of assumptions and, um, you know, one of the things, I'm in the dating world, right? And my friends who have been married for some time, even even like my baby brother who's only been married 10 years, right? The, the landscape has changed so dramatically that mm. the advice he gives me is like, it's like I'm talking to my great grandparents. Like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm serious. I'm always like, you have no clue. Like, this is a, he doesn't understand that this is a universe in which the primary mode of communication is texting, Right. Um, and, and what does online dating do to, to, to the whole landscape? I mean, it's just, it's just vastly, vastly different. Um, and and uh, so one of the things he talks about in, in this book that I was just fascinated with um, was an idea that Ken Myers brought up at a Circe conference like in 2006 or something like that about how, from a consumer standpoint, our unlimited options for the things that we can mm -hmm. choose to buy create incredible anxiety in us. And so Aziz Ansari explores that same idea in terms of dating. Like, so if, if he said, you know, it's no longer, we don't live in the world anymore where you, you just marry the cutest girl in your neighborhood, right? And then you just make the best of it because mm. that's literally all the options you had, right? Um, we live in, in the world of online dating, which means you literally have unlimited possible romantic partners, right? Mm. And, and he talks about the anxiety that creates and how, you know, how could you ever pick someone? What if you just haven't looked hard enough? Right? How, how can you ever make that choice? And it was right. just fascinating as he kind of wrestled with all of that. And one of the things, um, and Dave, you're just going to have to stop me when I, when I go too much on, onto this, because I really found <laughs> this to be a very interesting book. Um, one of the things that he, he um, now I've forgotten what I was going to say, but... Uh, <laughs> Oh, oh, crud. A particularly fascinating insight that he had. Yes. And, oh, it had something to do with Pride and Prejudice. Urgh. Please edit all this. Um, 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 um. Angelina, what a fascinating side-by-side -side comparison of uh, courtship in Pride and Prejudice and dating in that book. It really was. It really was. Like, so he, he interviews people who married the cute girl in the neighborhood, you know, like 50, 60 years later. And... While, you know, in terms of statistics, you would say these people had successful marriages, what he found was that they weren't really personally that satisfied in the relationship. Mm. Um, and, and that, um, oh, I know what I was going to say. Okay, so one of my little pet issues is that people who are 
married and not in the dating pool, will often make these very generic condemning statements about um, the romantic life of our country right now. And they'll say things like, oh, you know, people aren't getting married. It's because they have a low view of marriage or they just want to, uh, you know, immerse themselves in the sexual revolution. Nobody wants to settle down. And, and we have a distressing low view of marriage. And they conclude that this is why people are not getting married at a young age. Um, this has not been my experience at mm. all. And, and this book really confirmed that with the statistics to back it up, which was, I found um, exciting. Um, rather, um, what, what we're seeing is that young people today are taking marriage so seriously, right, that they can't, they are almost paralyzed. They can't make a choice because what if they're making the wrong choice? Like they do not want to get a divorce. They want one love for a lifetime. But there are so many other factors contributing, like huh. like the fact that you have unlimited choices. How do I know that I'm making the right choice, right? And so um, there's just this kind of this deep longing for that special, lifelong, romantic love, that marriage that's going to last forever, and this incredible fear that they're not going to be able to find it. Yeah. And, and it creates this very interesting angst. Um, he concludes in uh, – well, you know, he talks about that people have different sets of expectations for marriage now than they did in the past. Um, namely that they're looking for this close emotional intimacy, this soulmate. Um, you know, I think we saw in Jane Austen that you, people wanted affection and, and a love match. Um, but, but the idea that your spouse is your best friend, that's a, that's a particularly modern idea, right? That's not something yeah. that Aziz Ansari's parents would have thought of as, 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 as spouses, as, as best friends. Um, so people want that, which makes it much more difficult for people to find that. But then he concludes that um, while it's much more difficult to find it, the, the payoff is much greater mm. in terms of the satisfaction that people can get from their relationships and their marriages now. Interesting. Um, but I found the whole thing very interesting and, and um, I, I imagine it's the sort of book that would push a lot of our listeners out of their comfort zones because it would, it would challenge, I think, uh, a lot of um, kind of the commonly held wisdom especially all the millennial bashing that I refuse to participate in and take great offense at. <laughs> Good for you. That's interesting. Um, it's also very funny. I bet it's funny. Yeah. No surprise. We should say caveat Maybe though, like some of his stuff is definitely like not endorsed by Cersei. The Cersei oh no, no. Yes. And I'm not even giving it like a total thumbs up endorsement because obviously, you know, he, he, he has no problems with people living together. You know, he just he's observing it from a sociological standpoint. He's not he's not pushing an agenda. It's really it's really just an investigative and he's asking questions and he's just telling you what he's observed. Yeah, yeah. Um okay, so my last book, since we gotta get moving along here, is I'm gonna go novel. I'm also gonna go a new novel. Uh we we assume sort of that most of you um are hopefully reading classics regularly. Um, so I wanted to give you a couple of options of things that have come out recently that I think stack up fairly well. Um, and from that, you know, the 2016 released novel that I thought was the best, or at least that I, that I read that was the best. It's called the underground railroad by Colson Whitehead. And I believe this book, I believe just won the national book award, something, some prize like that. Um, and it is about, it's a slave narrative. Um, it's about a slave on a cotton plantation in Georgia who, you know, not surprisingly is lives in a really, you know, terrible circumstances. Um, it's kind of a, a coming of age novel in some ways. Um, she's coming into adulthood. Um, and she ends up, well, to short, you know, long story short, she ends up on the road 
uh, running away and she ends up on the underground underground railroad uh, where different people take her in and um, but 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 the twist is that the underground railroad in this novel is actually an underground railroad so it's kind of a historical context novel but that has also got a bit of a sci-fi element to it or a fantasy element where there's, huh. an, on this, there's actually train stations underground and they're trying to hide where the locations are and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's, it's very, it's got this very dreamy uh, lyrical thing going on. Um, r- really great prose. It's a little bit brutal at times because it is a slave narrative. If you have, if you have any knowledge or have ever read any of the slave narratives, you know, dating back t- to the 1800s even, then you'll know that there's there's a lot of troubling stuff in those. So this isn't different than that, but it's also a, a tale about this young woman who's really courageous, um, really um, really hopeful, um, and and even where it's like um, harrowing in a way, um, it's it's um, it's also hopeful and it's really powerful. And um, especially I think given some of the you know the, the continued um trouble you know with race relations in this country um it's a novel that i think is really really worth reading you know at this kind of place in time in our in our country's history so the underground railroad by the underground railroad that's a hard one to say by colson whitehead is is my third book that i got excited about this year i just marked it on my goodreads to read list and i'm going to go back and like mark all of the books that we've talked about on my Goodreads list. I figure we had to have at least one piece of fiction on there, like one. Yeah, novel, right, 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 right. But we talk about well, fiction. Beowulf was fiction. Well, I was going to say other than <laughs> that's why I said novel. Um, but I was going to, I was just about to say other than Beowulf. But the uh, you know we talk about fiction primarily on this uh, on this show. So you know having some books of social and cultural criticism, I think, are really are really really good to have on there. So. Okay, quickly. Hey, we should, David, we should list all of the um, books, the nine books that we've discussed on the Facebook page. Yeah, we can do that. I'll put it on the show notes as well. So, okay, quickly. Uh, what is one book that you read? You know, don't give me a lot of reasons why, but what is one book that you read this year that you were excited about that you were disappointed by? Oh, gosh. Or that didn't live up to the, what people have said about it or that you just, for whatever reason, it wasn't all, you had, all that you had hoped. I actually have an answer to that. Can I go while Tim yeah. thinks? Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. Okay, so one of the one of my 2015 new authors that I get introduced to by Cindy Rollins was Josephine Tay, and I read her first book, which was about uh, Richard III, and loved it. So this year I read her other book, Miss Prim Disposes, and it was a yawn fest. <laughs> Did not like it at all. It was a detective novel, which I love, but she's no Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> and now everyone's gonna like give me hate mail. Just didn't dig it. <laughs> Sam, do you have one? I read this terrible novel called Water for Elephants by Sarah Gruen. Ugh. Like, oh, uh, why did I finish it? Yeah, why did you finish it? <laughs> because I have this thing, like, if I get, you know, halfway through, I just feel oh, like I'm my the duty same to way. finish it. It's, and it, yeah, it was just not worth the time. So, um, my How about tro- you, David? Did you have one? Yeah, my choice would be is a children's book that that I read to the boys um and by an author whose other books I think are great and this is a book that does have a pretty high reputation but I was really disappointed by the trumpet of the swan the trumpet oh. of the swan so I don't, I've never read that so you know EB White wrote Stuart Little and um Charlotte's Web 
and another trumpet of the swan has like it's got a pretty decent reputation and it's not that i thought it was terrible so i'm looking at it now four stars on goodreads for example 4.05 average so people love it but it's not that i thought it was terrible but i thought that it was it, it did not meet my expectations and interestingly um you know like i think one of my kids liked it and one didn't but um you guys there Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that so that's the one that didn't meet my expectations. I'm probably going to yeah. also get some some incre- some incredulous <laughs> responses to that one on on the old social media. Um so be it. So be it. <laughs> that and the hate mail I'm going to get for recommending Aziz Ansari. I'm not really recommending it. Just You're just explaining a, why it excited you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're expecting that you, who, those of you who are listening to this show, are using some discretion when we talk about books like this. <laughs> yeah, if it's really. not a book that you're going to love or that you don't want to subject yourself to, <laughs> then by all means, don't do so. Right. Um, well, and don't be scrolling through Netflix and be like, oh, wait, Aziz Ansari. Isn't that who Angelita was talking about? Yeah. I cannot be held responsible for the man's stand up. I'm talking about a published book on the bestseller list, okay? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this has been fun. Little recap of the uh, the our year in reading. Um, we should find a way to post somewhere uh, some of the other books that we all liked, and so people can see them. And but we but we would also love to hear from the listeners. So please do go over to the Facebook group and uh, and let us know some of the things that you're reading. Um, let us know what some of the surprises are, the the, the disappointments, you know, all the things we talked about here. Um, and if you've ever read Aziz Ansari's book and um, <laughs> You know, didn't uh, didn't care for it. You can let Angelina know. Hey, side note. So Graham, who works with me here, he's our you know graphic designer. He is a photographer, and he was he does some um, side work doing like land like um, stuff for real like real estate. So like if someone's trying to sell their house, he'll come in and take pic- like really good pictures of them so that the houses look good. So he does some really nice houses sometimes, and he goes to this house, and um, it's a nice house. You know, outside of Charlotte, he's taking photos, um, and he meets the people who uh, own the house, and they're they're Indian. It's an Indian couple, and uh, they're really nice. And he's talking to them, and, and then they they start talking about their family and how one kid's a doctor and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, "Yeah, well, my other son, he's he's on a show called Parks and Recreation. He's an actor and a comedian. His name's Aziz. I'm sorry." <laughs> so Graham, so Graham like stopped in his tracks and said, "Oh, I love I love you know Parks and Rec and." So he he's uh, so he got to meet Aziz Ansari's parents, uh, who apparently That's lived awesome. here in Charlotte. So That's great. Yeah. That's great. So he talks about a lot in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a uh, little side story there before we head out. But um, just want to say also quickly, thank you to everyone who donated this month. We we met our goal of $10,000 oh, and then some. So that's actually we, – we raised close to $14,000, um, and that um, will get matched twice by our by – our, uh, two generous donors who are going to match you know the 10,000. So we had That's a great. very successful fundraising campaign. Thanks to everyone who's who donated and who's been helping spread the word. It's it helps out so much as we as we enter the new year and you know it makes it so we can do things like this more often. Um Angelina and Tim, any final thoughts before we uh before we head my out for, for 2016? Okay, so my final thought, which will surprise no one, is that even though you wouldn't let me say it, my favorite book I read this year was Jaber Crow. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Tim, final thought. Keep reading. <laughs> oh, wow. You had to get all smart. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get all bumper sticker on us. Keep I did. I, did. I went all bumper sticker on us. It's true. 
Well, my final thought is thanks to everyone for listening. It's been a good year. Uh, thank you for joining us here on the Podcast Network, and Happy New Year from all of us here at Cersei and on the Podcast Network. Um, we look forward to many more shows in the new year. We're going to be recording Close Reads once a week coming up in the new year on Fridays at 2 p.m. So the shows will then This is air. bound to improve my yeah. numbers for next year, yeah. my reading numbers. <laughs> or make them worse. The, uh, <laughs> the shows will air then on Monday of each week. So you'll have a weekly show from us. We'll be with you weekly. That may, that'll be adjusted you know, if we're traveling or something comes up. But for the most part, that's the goal to record every week. So you have some regular, regular programming every week. Um, and uh, you know, we look forward to ongoing conversations, ongoing reading, and uh, ongoing arguments, of course. Um, <laughs> this of means course. that our listeners are going to have really clean houses because from what people tell me, they listen to us while they clean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this your is kit- unfathomable to me. Your, your kitchens and bathtubs are going to be inc- are going to be sparkling. Um, but you know, that's, that's, gift to you. that's the goal. Exactly. That's the goal. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Close Reads here on the Cersei Podcast Network. Uh, Happy New Year. And we look forward to talking to you in 2017.